Well, we're pleased to be joined live in the studio tonight by Amot Sasael, a scholar and political analyst and author of the Jewish March of the Folly. So, Amot, thank you for joining us tonight. Thank you, Ari. Now, you spoke recently before President Isaac Herzog at his residency about civil war in Jewish history. Are we facing a civil war? Well, the first thing that very few people realize, but which I discussed extensively in my Hebrew book, The Jewish March of Folly, is that civil war was a frequent and, in my view, also faithful presence in ancient Jewish history. I counted 12 civil wars in uh, ancient uh, Israel's uh, 12 centuries here until the destruction by Rome, nine during the biblical period Mm -hmm. and three during the Roman period. And um, it, you don't even need a big historical thesis to read through the Bible and understand, for instance, that the downfall of biblical Israel was due, or at least chronologically followed, a breakup between the kingdoms of Judah and Israel. Uh, and, and between the two of them, the Bible itself says um, uh, that there were recurring uh, civil wars. Uh, real wars with uh, the, 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 the Bible, in fact, gives huge numbers of casualties. So uh, in my reading, um, uh, had Judah and Israel not split, had King Solomon's kingdom not been split by mm-hmm. his own, by the generation immediately after him, Rehavim. then um, then then ancient Israel might have uh, uh, survived, maybe even defeated the Assyrian uh, invasion of uh, Israel and later the Babylonian invasion of Judah. Instead, they reached that uh, supreme test, the test of a foreign um, empire's invasion, divided and thus were defeated and lost the country. So the, 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 the catastrophe was multidimensional. First of all, it was demographic. Okay. Ancient Israel lost 10 of its 12 tribes. Then it was also political. Ancient Israel lost its sovereignty and Later, in the wake or in the aftermath of the civil wars during the Roman era, ancient Israel also lost its, um, it, the mentality of an independent people and became instead a fatalistic people. Well, you know, when you look back and you're talking about the, the 12 civil wars during this 1,200-year period, uh, it seems you said that every four generations was fated to have yes, a Yes, that's war. the average. Now, um, does that portray some sort of character flaw in the Jewish nation? No, I, uh, I first of all, in my book, I, I um, vehemently dismiss the very idea that there is anything like a hereditary biological national property for any nation. Uh, this is fascistic, um, Darwinian or even Nazi thinking. I don't believe in it. What I do uh, um, believe in, and, and I don't think anyone can refute, is that there is national heritage. Mm-hmm. And the Jews indeed do have a heritage of deep suspicion of and disparagement for human power. Um, uh, this is also ideological and, and legal, or legally defined uh, by Moses and by others subsequent to him. So that heritage does exist, and um, uh, it culminated, in my view, at least textually speaking, in the famous uh, speech on the top of Masada um, by uh, the leader of the mass suicide over there, in which he says that when the, the confrontation between the Jews and the Romans began, he and his colleagues uh, decided that they would oppose not only Roman rule, but any human rule. That was an un- 
anarchic type of thinking and it harked generations back and some of that is still with us but here. But they also believe they were the last Jews, last free Jews on earth. But you also mentioned maybe tribalism is a, is a cause. Yes, for so the big difference between the, uh, um, the nine civil wars that are detailed in the Bible and, and the three that happened uh, during the Roman era is that the, the biblical civil wars all had a tribal element to them, and, and that was their engine. Uh, in one of them, in fact, for instance, the king of Judah, uh, Aviah in his case, um, moments before the lifting his sword and ordering uh, the army of Judah to, to charge the army of Israel, he tells, uh, he shouts towards the Israelite um, army, his own brethren, that he's about to launch a civil war with. He shouts at them, and he says, you should all know that the God of Israel gave David kingship over Israel to him and to his sons forever, a covenant of salt. This is where the term is from. That was a tribal thinking, the thinking that the tribe is supreme, it's tribal supremacy, if you want. What happened in the Second Temple yes. civil wars was that they were fought over ideological differences. Two of them were about the attitude towards Rome right. between camps that... <clears throat> One camp that sought accommodation with Rome and another that sought a war with it. And one war was about internal uh, forms of government. It was a, the war between uh, King Alexander the Hasmonean, Yanai, and the Pharisees. Uh, part of which, by the way, at least according to the sages, was a dispute over the relationship between the king and the judiciary. Interesting. I mean, but... Where was the leadership then, and how do we see that in when we have the reformation of the Jewish nation here, where we have leadership that we have seen crises, and we've seen the opposite sides unite? We, now, um, the, the Zionist movement set out to reverse and put an end to what I call the Jewish march of folly, to reunite, not only to relocate uh, the Jewish people, and not only to gather them from the dozens of countries where they were scattered, but also to reunite them um, and, and to not repeat those mistakes of the past. And the state of Israel has had amazing accomplishments in this regard three times. Mm. In 1967, in the face of the threat of, of, of military extinction as, as all of our neighbors' armies ganged up on us, we created for the first time in Israel's history a broad unity government a labor-led government brought into the government Menachem Begin for the first time in his history. He became a minister. And it was that unity government that days after that uh, went to the Six-Day War and won it as impressively as they did. That was one case. Then in 1984, Israel faced economic collapse. Um, due to economic reasons, there was hyperinflation, whatever, and it faced economic collapse. The politicians in the face of that in 1984, the sworn enemies, Shimon Peres and Yitzhak Shamir, created a broad government. And that broad government, it took it about a year, but that broad government then jointly introduced a massive, ambitious, drastic uh, economic um, uh, rehabilitation program. And it was a massive success. And in fact, this is what jump-started Israel's great economic miracle that we celebrate to this day. That, too, was done by a unity government. In other words, for the second time in hardly two decades, um, Israel um, uh, showed that in the face of a sudden uh, uh, existential threat, it can unite. Lastly, in 2001, the same thing repeated itself when Israel faced 
the, uh, the suicide bombers, um, Ariel Sharon and Shimon Peres, who were the big ideological rivals of Greater Israel and Land for Peace, joined hands and jointly defeated that war or won that war. Um, uh, in other words, there is this precedent in Israeli history. In my view, this is also what we now face. I want to talk to you a little bit about President Isaac Herzog, who's been a fascinating character in this whole latest crisis sweeping the country. And you spoke at his residence about civil war. He seems to have an attempt to try to to, to do something here. Does he have the power to do something? He seems to be in some way, uh, his strength is in his weakness. He doesn't have followers. He has no charisma. And he's, and he has, but he has no haters either. He brings several assets into uh, the situation. Uh, the first of them is his attitude. He understands deeply the gravity of the situation and the uh, demands of his position. Uh, it should be noted that in the history of the Israeli presidency, on, on regular days, the Israeli presidency is strictly ceremonial as it is meant to be. Uh, but there were moments when it became extremely meaningful. The, most, the best remembered of those moments happened in 1982 when then-President Yitzhak Navon, in the face of the Sabah and Shatila massacres, uh, emerged from his uh, ceremonial position and publicly demanded the establishment of a formal commission of inquiry and this is what made the Begin government actually do that mm-hmm. and it then of course shaped subsequent events that was one moment in which the Israeli presidency suddenly shaped events and another was during Herzog's father's days um, when uh, when he was president in 1984 he was instrumental in creating the unity government that I mentioned earlier uh, he Mediated between Yitzhak Shamir and Shimon Peres, both of whom respected them deeply because of, his, of their common pasts, that was the second precedent. Isaac Herzog understands, therefore, uh, the gravity of the situation. He recalls vividly, by the way, that situation in 1984. He, he witnessed from close up how right. his father right. functioned in those days. And uh, that's the one thing that it brings into this, the deep understanding and emotional involvement in what is happening. That does not go without saying that someone else in his place might have simply stepped aside. He, he has done the opposite of that, and that's extremely welcome under the circumstances. In fact, there is no other natural mediator right now between the sides because everybody has climbed tall trees and is entrenched. Excuse a mixed metaphor, but um, um, they're immovable. So he's playing a crucial role in this regard. The second thing is the baggage that he brings. He's a seasoned lawyer, and he's a very veteran politician. He yes, understands yes. politics deeply. He was leader of the opposition. He was a minister in the government. He was cabinet secretary. He knows all the actors, and he knows all the tricks and the shticks. And he understands how, how compromises are crafted. This is besides his personality being the type of person who seeks compromises and is good at bringing together coalitions. That's what the situation uh, uh, demands. Lastly, as you mentioned, he comes into this situation with neither of the parties suspecting that he's in it for himself. Uh Um, uh, He doesn't have troops. He does not lead a party. Um, The party that he's nominally identified with is the most anecdotal party in today's Knesset. Four seats, I mean, labor. that powerlessness actually under the circumstances, in my view, an asset. And I therefore think, if you ask for my assessment, what he has jump-started, uh, that blueprint for a compromise, is not dead, as otherwise claim. I think it's alive and well, and it will mature. And, and uh, ultimately, I think this is where all this will head. 
I want to ask you one final question. I mean, we're looking at this whole, uh, we're following the, this social unrest that's going on here. And it's, this country seems and appears to be highly split. But on the other hand, it's a functioning country and, and people are out. The beaches are full yesterday. It was a warm day. And, and do you think we're on the verge of any kind of civil war? Or is this just rhetoric? Well, it depends what civil war is. Fortunately, nothing of the sort that the Spanish or the American or, or, or the Russian civil wars were is 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 uh, remotely relevant here. We're not talking about regions with their separate armies and and weaponry. That's not what we might face. What we might face is a type of uh, war of terrorism. Uh, if you ask me for the worst case scenario, um, uh, people might start attacking each other and and institutions that are identified with the rival camp. That's the kind of uh, worst risk that we face, physically, violently speaking. Socially speaking, you don't need to go as far as there in order for the sense of common goals and, and fraternity and solidarity uh, to fray. And um, uh, I think that's the big danger. And I'm not sure that all the politicians involved in what we face understand this. When I listened last night to Netanyahu's uh, TV address uh, in the aftermath of the violence that took place in Tel Aviv, by his own police force. Um, I listened attentively in order to hear a message of appeasement. No, it was very uh, some, aggressive. Some kind of um, um, signaling that he is detecting emotionally the people down in the streets and that he is absorbing their wrath and their concern and their deep sense of robbery. And um, uh, he seems either unable to understand and feel that this is what is happening or unable to transmit this emotional message. I think it's crucial under the circumstances. And, and, and I hope it somehow, somehow emerges at least later uh, um, as events unfold. Well, as you said before, our Israelis have in the past crises united. And we'll see if uh, these efforts now by Herzog, President Herzog. God willing, are you? Yes. All right. Amot Sassel, uh, a scholar and political analyst and author of The Jewish March of the Folly and a fellow at the Hartman Institute. Thank you so much for joining us here. Thank you, Arya.